Hello, everyone. I'm Marie Ruel, Director of the Poverty Health and Nutrition Division at IFPRI. And I'm delighted to welcome you to our IFPRI policy seminar entitled Nudging for Good, Artificial Intelligence or AI-Driven Diagnostics and Behavior Change to Improve Diets and Nutrition. So this seminar will launch a new tool called FRANI, Food Recognition Assistance and Nudging Insights, which is a cutting-edge AI-assisted mobile phone application to measure the nutrient content of foods and diets and provide guidance to users on how to improve the quality of their diets. The seminar will also highlight other innovations in dietary assessment methods and for measuring diet quality, proposing simpler tools and indicators. What all these tools have in common are their main goals to first simplify and standardize dietary assessment approaches, to make them more user-friendly and to reduce the cost of measurement, to improve the quality of the data themselves, and ultimately to help scale up efforts to measure dietary intake and to generate comparable public data on diet and nutrient intakes across countries, regions, and globally. So why do we need such data? First of all, because we know the famous saying that what gets measured gets done. And in the case, uh, in this case, this is very relevant because for too long we have lived without really investing in dietary assessment, especially in low and middle income countries. And as a result, we really do not have good data on diets, on nutrient gap, and on how rapidly changing diets in these contexts affect health and nutrition outcomes. So we don't have the data that could guide policy to stimulate consumers to achieve healthy and nutritious diets. A second reason for the importance of this topic now is clearly, is clearly that we are in the middle of successive and overlapping crises that have one thing in common. They are causing excessive economic hardship throughout the world because they're affecting both income and food prices and they are making healthy and nutritious diets even less accessible and affordable than before, especially for the most marginalized populations. Now, I'd like to just mention also some positive developments that have helped start to position healthy diets as a critical element of the development agenda in recent years, including the fact that the UN State of, the, of Food Security and Nutrition Report, the annual SOFI report, has started to report and track changes on the cost and affordability of healthy and nutritious diets three years ago. This is a very welcome addition to other measures of food security and undernourishment that the report publishes annually. I also believe that the availability of these data in 2020, starting in 2020, has also helped bring the topic of healthy diets squarely in the discussions held at the UN Food Systems Summit in 2021, coming back to the point that data helped bring the topic to the table. And finally, another contribution comes from a series of projects funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, including the Food Prices for Nutrition project led by Tufts University with IFPRI and the World Bank. This project launched a food price data hub hosted by the World Bank in a seminar held two weeks ago. And the team also presented new findings on the cost and affordability of healthy diets in a, in a second seminar held at IFPRI on the following day. The video recordings are available for both events on the project website. 
All this work is nicely coming together and contributes to creating a real momentum for healthy and nutritious diets. And the presentations today will focus on describing the new tools available for dietary assessment. And in the second part, we will discuss the policy implications of these developments. So now let me introduce Aulo Jelly, who will chair the first part of the seminar. Aulo is Senior Research Fellow at IFRI and the Principal Investigator of the Nudging for Good project. But before I pass the floor to Aulo, we would like to remember everyone that we want to hear from you, to participate in our Q&A session that will follow the presenter's remarks. Please submit your questions on ifbre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using hashtag AskIfbre on Twitter. So thank you very much. And Aulo, the screen is yours. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Marie, for the introduction. As Mary mentioned, we'll now kick off part one of the seminar, focusing on recent developments in new technology for dietary assessment and the launch of the Nudging for Good Plow Village Franny application. So without further ado, we'll start off a video presentation on the validity. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for the opportunity to present the work of the Nudging for Good project over the last couple of years. We set out to do something that hadn't been done before. And as you hopefully see from the next few slides, the results exceeded even our own expectations. And that is credit to the Nudging for Good project team and to Fondacion Botnar that financed this work. So what is the problem we're trying to address in the words of the Lancet and lessons of facing a hidden crisis in nutrition? And nutrition during adolescence is critical for development and health. For girls, also affects the survival and well-being of their children. However, adolescent nutrition has faced a pervasive policy neglect, partly due to the gap in dietary and nutrition-related data. And in this gap, social media and the private sector have exacerbated these trends. In this context, the Nudging for Good project was designed to develop a mobile app with functionality to recognize different foods and portion sizes and provide nudges through tailored feedback, individualized feedback, based on food-based dietary guidelines to improve diets in two other settings, including urban Ghana and Vietnam. This was followed by acceptability and feasibility studies, as well as validation and pilot studies. In addition, a fourth phase was envisioned, including randomized trials uh, pending on additional funding. Franny, the new mobile app, was developed after extensive um, feedback from potential users. Uh, Franny itself was designed in two different versions, the full Franny with gamified nudges and dietary assessment functionality, as well as control Franny designed to undertake only the dietary assessment. What Franny allows you to do, and as you'll see in this uh, quick video, uh, is basically allows users to set uh, user goals based on food-based dietary guidelines, track food consumption using machine learning, computer vision, uh, allow users to uh, override or um, correct the AI in case it's needed, and um, then provide feedback based on the user set goals and other uh, diet quality related indicators. The app development itself also included extensive machine learning, and I'll pass the floor to my colleague, uh, Pete McCloskey, to tell us more about it. Thank you. Hi, everybody. 
My name is Pete McCloskey, and I'm the lead AI engineer for the Nudging for Good project. And I'll be introducing our AI model, the data set that we uh, collected in Ghana and Vietnam, and also some uh, metrics we use to evaluate uh, the performance of the model. So our AI model is powered by a semantic segmentation architecture. And the most common uh, semantic segmentation uh, architecture that you've interacted with is um, one that is applying a blurring effect to the background of your video in a Zoom or Teams call or in a picture like here. And so that model has two classes. There, there's a class for the foreground and a class for the, the background. And all semantic segmentation models are classifying individual pixels into one of those uh, classes. And so when the model recognizes that the pixel belongs to the background, it applies a blurring effect. And so Similarly, we're using semantic segmentation to classify pixels in images of food. And so here are some examples of those images. In Ghana, we have a data set made up of 5,000, about 5,500 images, and that spans across 153 different food classes. And you can see an example of one of those images here, a plate of fried rice with beef sauce. And then to the right of that image is the ground truth mask. And so this is where a human has come in and manually labeled each of the pixels in the image. The blue ones belong to the plate class. Um, the gray ones belong to the background class, et cetera. And so similarly, we, we did the same um, process in, in Vietnam. We collected about six and a half thousand images that span uh, 254 different food classes. Um, and you can see an, an example of one of the images here and the corresponding ground truth mask to the right. So once we collected and annotated all of our data, we were able to train a model and generate some results like this. So this is an input image on the left-hand side, the ground truth mask that was labeled by a human in the middle, and then the prediction mask that was generated by the model on the right-hand side. And you can see, roughly speaking, the model did a good job of recognizing the foods correctly. The colors in the ground truth mask line up with the colors in the prediction mask. Um, but it's not quite as precise as uh, the, pred the prediction is not as precise as the ground truth mask. So to get a, a better understanding of exactly how the model is performing, we do an, uh, a thorough pixel by pixel uh, evaluation to compare what the human had labeled to what the model had predicted. And when we do that, across all of our different classes, we have an accuracy of about 77.5%. Uh, then if we take it one step further and group our food classes into food groups, we find that the pixel-wise accuracy goes up to 86.5%. And you can see in the table uh, at the bottom half of the slide, um, the different uh, food group accuracies and we're pretty consistent across the board. Thanks very much, Pete. We then ran a rigorous validation study that was aimed at validating Fran for dietary assessment in adolescent girls in both Ghana and Vietnam against weight records, our gold standard for dietary assessment, and a multi-pass 24-hour recall, which is the standard method we use in most of our surveys. We ran the validation study both in Accra, the capital city of Ghana, and Tainguyen, a secondary city in Vietnam, with a sample of 36 adolescent girls aged 12 to 18 per country. We undertook dietary assessment on three non-consecutive days, including two weekdays, and a day on a weekend, using all three methods for comparisons. I'm now going to present the study uh, results in both Vietnam and Ghana. What I'm going to present to you is the ratio of the estimates generated with Franny 
and those estimated with standard methods like the Wade record and uh, the 24-hour record. I'm going to present to you the ratio of the Franny estimate to the Wade record, and you'd want this estimate to be as close as possible to the green line on this particular chart for all these different nutrients. You'd want this to be as close as possible to one, and you'd want it to be within these two red dotted lines, which represent the 20% error bound. Uh, this side represents the results with regards to Franny, and this side represents the results with so Franny, we found that uh, most ratios uh, for all micronutrients, except for vitamin A and B12, were within a tw this 20% bound. And among the 11 key micronutrients, four of them were within a 10% bound, and three nutrients were within a 50% bound. What happened with the 24-hour recall? The results were largely equivalent. So no major differences between Franny and the 24-hour recall. And these study findings are currently being accepted in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. What did we see in Ghana? So starting off with the 24-hour recall, we found that this particular method underperformed with regards to uh, the 24-hour recall in Vietnam. So we found that no micronutrients were within that 15% bound. And what happened with Franny? Well, Franny, to a certain degree, outperformed a human doing a 24-hour recall. And these ratios uh, are for the 11 key micronutrients, two were within a 15% bound and a large number with a, within the 20% bound. So these findings suggest that when we compare Franny to, uh, to human, we, and we also factor in the cost of assessment, which factor in about $100 per assessment in the case of the 24-hour recall. And in the case of Franny, really account for the cost of selling data uh, clearly, the, the, the balance shifts towards Franny. But Franny also does what humans cannot do. Here we kind of see a graph of uh, consumption patterns over a 30-day pilot period for girls who received Franny with a full managing functionality and girls in the control group that only had the control Franny for dietary assessment. Not only showing that we have detailed dietary data uh, collected over 30 days, which is pretty unique, we also have insights that the nudging and gamified functionality that Franny pro uh, provides can actually work uh, towards improving diets and make shifting choices towards healthier foods, as highlighted, for example, in these trends in the, using the Eat Lancet score, for example. So we've in these slides, we've shown where we are now, which is the successful validation of the proof of concept. Where would we like to be? in five years' time. Five years' time, we'd like to be operating at scale in the real world and operating in a sustainable way. The way we see ourselves doing that is securing additional funding to run more pilots and validation studies in different contexts, as well as taking them to the next level through effectiveness trials and operating a larger scale, whilst at the same time strengthening friendly processes, including improving the food composition and underlying recipe data, as well as enhancing some of the nudging functionality that we've seen works so far. But I leave it at, at that for now. Thank you very much for your attention. And I'd like to thank the Nudging for Good team that was uh, co-authored all this work and our funders uh, uh, who financed this project. Thank you very much. Thank you. And without further ado, I'll pass the floor uh, to Dr. Benilo from Imperial College 
to present on passive dietary monitoring and the use of wearable cameras and AI to quantify dietary activity. Over to you, Benny. Thank you. So let me just share my screen. Um, just one second. Right. Okay. So, right. Thanks for, first of all, thanks uh, uh, for the organizer, a little to invite, uh, uh, giving me the chance to talk about our project. So, uh, as Alu said, we're going to talk about the passive dietary monitoring tool we, we have developed. So, just bear in mind that my background is in engineering, so uh, my talk will be a little bit more, more towards the technical side rather than rather on the um, nutrition side. So, uh, our project is called Innovative Passive Dietary Monitoring System, which is uh, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So, the aim of the project. Uh, we want to do is to develop a passive dietary monitoring system. In, in other words, we're using wearable cameras and fixed camera to capture uh, food intake and food preparation and eating activities. In a nutshell, so this is what we're going to do, uh, which we've been doing, is um, <coughs> we have, uh, uh, there are some wearable cameras this from our colleague in Alabama and Pittsburgh uh, that the participant just wear the camera and then the camera will be continuous capturing images. And we're using AI and, uh, and deep learning methods to recognize the food item, so identify what it is, and also estimate the, uh, the portion size of them in order to uh, deduce the uh, nutrients, similar to what Alu and team has been uh, doing. Um, so to give you some idea, so this is some work uh, we've done before uh, in terms of uh, using a wearable camera in order to estimate the, uh, the food consumption. So in this study, we use a wearable camera, uh, a GoPro camera, just put on the shoulder. So similar to the setup, which uh, we use in our study um, in Ghana and Uganda. So uh, we collect a number of uh, data uh, and uh, the data set about 1,000 show, 1,000 or so video clips, and there were about 66 unique and visible food items uh, in that data set. So we can see some of the food items. So slightly different from the smartphone approach, you can see the camera view angle is, is not like directly on top, and we don't have any marking or anything. So just uh, image captured by the camera itself. And so we, from the data set, we have eight new classes, uh, about 18 fine grain new classes, and then 66 unique food items. So this just a pie chart showing some of those um, food items. Uh, so in a bit, you can see that, um, yeah, our students like Japanese food and, and sushi and so on. So uh, what we aim to is to detect those food uh, new classes, fine grain uh, food items, and also the ingredients. And on top of that, we also want to capture the amount for intake. So what we did is we counting the bites. So how many bites the, the person is eating? So purely from the camera itself. Uh, so we use uh, those kind of like ResNet, which is one of those deep learning methods. Um, to detect, detect the uh, number of bytes um, uh, count. Um, and then the accuracy about 65% in terms of uh, detecting those um, number of bytes. 
And uh, in terms of the new classes, for those eight new classes, we got nearly 100%, and about 55% for the 16 or 18 subclasses. And in terms of the food items, accuracy will be uh, was around 65. So we, from a very uh, kind of like, um, <clears throat> simple new classes to fine, fine green uh, food items, um, of course, the accuracy uh, will drop. And then in terms of the overall uh, food consumptions, so the accuracy is about 40%. Uh, percent. Uh, it's not, of course, it's not uh, 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 perfect, but uh, this is, mind you, this is just purely on the images captured from the wearable cameras. Uh, and uh, the data we got is still relatively small on this in this um, work. And just to give you, um, some idea so you can see um, how you can recognize the food items. So uh, and go down some details in terms of the uh, uh, like the lunch box, they have the chicken rice and so on. And uh, in most cases, you can recognize those items uh, fairly accurately. Um, so go back to the project itself. So the aim of the project is, is, is uh, for collecting or for uh, quantifying the uh, nutrient intake uh, in uh, low and middle income countries. So in our project, we designed a number of studies. So the first study is a laboratory based study, which we done in London uh, to assess the food intake devices, those wearable cameras. And this study two uh, that we look into the accessibility and the feasibility in the field. So how people perceive of using those kind of technology in, uh, in Ghana and Uganda. So we have two phases. First is looking at the household food behavior. So what type of food they usually eat and so on. And phase two is uh, gathering some data and doing some preliminary field tests. And then going to study three, which we're doing the field validation uh, in both uh, Ghana and Uganda. So. We also have two phases. So basically we do the preliminary field data for roughly four households and eight at each site. And then phase two is uh, a target population. Uh, phase two is about 22 households at each site. So we have four sites. So one, Euro, one uh, rural area, one urban area in each country. So that four sites about 88 in total households. So we have completed our study in Ghana uh, and we're still uh, collecting data in Uganda. And uh, we, do, we, we do collect a lot of data because um, the cameras are continue capturing images. So in our study one, uh, about 700 images. Study two, we collected about 2.9 million images. Study three, about 7 million images. Um, and this, uh, uh, is only the Ghana, southern Ghana. We haven't uh, counted those which are collected in Uganda. It's a huge amount of data, and like almost humanly impossible <laughs> to identify uh, like what are those uh, going through all those images. So uh, the, the disadvantage of using wearable cameras is like you have uh, like uh, loads of data, but of course you can continue. You won't miss anything. Um, but it's a nightmare for, for like, uh, going through all those images. So we have uh, developed this kind of a self-supervised learning framework 
So it's some new technique in uh, in AI. So basically, it's the machine itself, machine to learn itself. Uh, in other words, we can cluster the different type of images into different events. It helps, so we don't need to label all the images, and we can already group them into clusters. So uh, we uh, we look at the study two data we collected in Ghana. Uh, uh, about 256,000 uh, images with no label, with no annotations by humans. And then we use a, a small, relatively small data set, about 4,000 images. We label them and then we use it uh, to uh, try to uh, train the network. And then, and then uh, so the large data set is trying to do the self-supervised learning. So these are some statistics about the data. They have like a mother, somebody different from the mother, father, the child. So we try to collect data in a kind of household with a, a family with a father, mother, and a couple of children. Um, and those are some statistics of those data. Uh, in terms of results, so, so just uh, I skip through those <laughs> details and just focus on the results. So, uh, uh, this uh, uh, may be a little bit confusing, but what, tried, what we're trying to show here is that we're grouping uh, those images into events. Basically, for those, for instance, for those eating uh, with a plates, oh, they will group together. And then it helps uh, the nutritionist just to target those images with food items and then do further in analysis. And this is how we, got, we, have, we can handle this large amount of data. So thank you very much. And uh, thanks. Thanks, you. Thank you very much, Benny. Really interesting work that your, your team has been pioneering and really, uh, really super, super uh, interesting. Yeah. We will now turn the floor to uh, the team at Intake. We have a, a double team, a tag teaming here, uh, Dr. Winnie Bell and Dr. Moran Morsi. We're going to talk about Index 24 and the Global Diet Quality Score application. Over to you, Winnie. Um, thank you very much. So uh, as Aldo just noted, I am Winnie Bell. I'm a senior technical advisor at Intake Center for Dietary Assessment. And today I'm going to be speaking about Index 24, the dietary assessment platform. So Index was um, developed at Tufts University with funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation over the past seven years and is currently hosted at Intake. We've just heard you know, a few really exciting examples about how um, advanced these technologies have kind of journeyed in recent years. And as Aldo said, you know, within the next five years, there's hope that uh, Franny at least could be used at um, much higher, broader survey scale. Um, but I think it's also important to sort of take a historical context and think about how far we've journeyed in recent years. And index 24 really fits in somewhere between, you know, the past traditional use of pen and paper and where these technologies are going and being innovated on. So, you know, in the past, um, pen and paper has really been the standard, particularly in low and middle income countries. If you ask anybody who's conducted a 24 hour recall with pen and paper, they'll tell you it's time consuming, error prone, tends to be expensive. Um, there's been a historical lack of investment in the research infrastructure and the dietary reference data, including food lists, food composition databases, standard recipes and conversion factors, um, as well as a lack of a sort of centralized hub, which has resulted in um, 
other inefficiencies and the need to sort of reinvent the wheel for each new study in any given context. Um, also with pen and paper surveys, the cleaning and processing of data is time consuming and um, can result in delayed policy and programmatic action. So this is, you know, thinking back over the last several decades and with this, um, there's been a big push to find alternative ways of collecting these dietary data. So index 24 um, enters the scene with that in mind. And index 24 is a dietary assessment platform composed of several different parts. So today for the presentation, I will be um, speaking primarily about the Global Food Matters Database and the index 24 mobile app. Um, however, the other components that you see on the screen here, including the survey management interface and the data analysis tools are important components because they all interlink um, for users of Index 24. I just have a few minutes, so I'm gonna just keep moving. Um, the Global Food Matters database has been designed to enable sharing of dietary reference data, including food lists, recipes, and conversion factors to help increase efficiencies for these dietary surveys. It's a centralized, publicly accessible repository of data, and users can copy the existing workspaces that are publicly available or, and or download the data to their own computer and add to them and then upload them to their workspace. The um, food, recipe, and ingredient names can all be translated in up to four languages of your choice for a given workspace. And these data are seamlessly linked to the Index24 mobile app, um, which allows for customization and easy updates of the dietary reference data as you prepare for a, a nutrition or a dietary study. So the Index24 mobile app um, uses a quantitative multiple task 24-hour dietary recall method, can be used on any Android device. It's an interviewer-administered system that um, has, you know, works fully offline, and then the data are uploaded to the cloud when the enumerator has a Wi-Fi connection. Any survey can use Index24 in up to four languages, and um, the whole design has been, you know, thoughtfully modeled to ensure consistent collection of uh, data across um, studies. Again, all of the food and recipe information is customizable through this link with the Global Food Matters database. We have, um, while, you know, while INDEX was being developed at Tufts University, a series of validation and cost studies were conducted in both Vietnam and Burkina Faso. I don't have time to get into the results, so I'm just sharing the kind of um, names of the papers and links here, but just will provide a brief summary to say that findings from these, this series of studies across Burkina Faso and Vietnam, we found, um, thank you, we found reduced total costs um, of using index 24 compared to pen and paper at, a, at the respondent level. We found, you know, that there were further cost and time savings when uh, existing dietary reference data from the Global Food Matters database were used. Overall, lower respondent burden where um, the, using index 24 was required the same or less time than pen and paper, shorter survey cycles, increased data quality um, of using index 24 compared to pen and paper, and overall improved user experience. We heard from both enumerators and respondents that index 24 was the preferred um, modality. So to date, index 24 has been adopted in 10 studies across six countries um, in Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia, including the national um, survey in Nigeria, which was obviously an enormous undertaking. Um, so just, you know, here are a couple of summary points and I will be able to um, discuss these more during the Q&A. Thank you.
Over, over to you, Morad. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is uh, Morad Morsi. I'm a senior technical advisor uh, at Intake. And um, uh, could you please pull up uh, the slide? Thank you. Thank you. So I'm going to be talking about something a bit different uh, called the Global Diet Quality Score. So if you think of a spectrum uh, in terms of complexity that uh, and richness of data that goes from the very simple qualitative metrics and dietary scores that you traditionally used all the way to what we've seen here with the 24-hour recall data, for instance, as one of the methods. And we're hoping, of course, that the AI will allow um, you know, to uh, increase the efficiency and reduce the cost of collection of that data. But the, the, the fact of the matter remains is that traditionally these approaches, like the 24-hour recall data, are time and resource uh, intensive. Uh, could you please move to the next slide? Thank you. They're time and resource intensive and usually not possible to carry at large scale on a regular or frequent basis. So the GDQS metric uh, is a part of a new generation of dietary uh, scores, dietary, dietary quality scores and metric that was developed to enable the frequent collection of this dietary data, overcoming the lack of data altogether in some uh, cases and making it possible to uh, design policies and programs that are designed to address real-time needs. Next slide. So the, the global diet quality score was designed to be very simple. It's a very simple diet quality metric. Uh, it's, it still provides with very rich data because it uses open recall. So on that uh, spectrum of complexity, it cl sits closer to the traditional 24-hour recall, um, it, uh, but, it's, but it doesn't use uh, food composition data. It's, it can be used globally and it has been validated uh, for women 15 to 49 years of age against uh, dimensions of nutrient adequacy and NCD risk. And the reason it sits a bit closer to the traditional 24 recall is because it accounts for quantity of consumption, which is an improvement over traditional metrics, but it does that at the food group level. Next uh, slide, please. So the, the GDQS metric has 25 food groups that you see here. Uh, we have 16 uh, healthy scoring food groups that include things like uh, legumes, nuts and seeds, and fish and shellfish. We have two food groups that are score healthy when consumed in moderate amounts and unhealthy in excessive amounts, high fat dairy and red meat. And then seven unhealthy scoring food groups uh, that include things like processed meats and uh, sugar sweetened beverages. Next slide, please. So along with the, uh, with the GDQS um, metric itself, We've also developed a mobile application because we really wanted uh, to uh, enable the users to have something that is efficient, that it's, uh, that it's simple, that is uh, cost efficient also to enable our users to be able to collect the GDQS data uh, easily. So we've developed this application that can be used on any Android device. Um, it is, you, I'll show you some screenshots. You'll see it's very easy to implement data. Typically, well, with this uh, uh, application takes 10 to 20 minutes. It does not require intensive training in, uh, or nutrition knowledge. It can be integrated and added to existing surveys. And um, we're hoping to public make it a public launch and make it publicly freely available to everyone uh, within uh, the coming year. Next slide. Um, the, the, um, the way the application works uh, is that the interview is done uh, in seven steps. I'm gonna show you here uh, for the sake of time, just a few of those steps. So the two screenshots that you see uh, on the left side of the screen are um, about the open recall step. So the, the application, uh, what it does for the GDQS data is that it collects, um, it doesn't, it, does, it, it collects data based on an open recall 
pretty much uh, the same that you would have uh, in the first pass of the 25 recall. So this is where the richness, you know, in terms of exactly knowing what people are eating comes in. Uh, it comes preloaded with a database uh, of uh, 4,500 food items that are, we, we're trying to make sure that these foods cover everything globally. And all of these food items are pre-classified in the, um, uh, according to the GDKS food groups. It also um, allows the uh, enumerator to break down recipes or mixed dishes that you see here uh, on, the, on the right uh, screenshot. Um, and uh, that allows you to get more information about mixed dishes. Next screen, please. I'm skipping here to the last step of the GDQS about the quantity, uh, uh, quantity of consumption estimation. And this is done with the help of those uh, 10 plastic cubes, hollow cubes that can be stacked with each other that you see here on that screen. And so the way it works is that the application, given that it automatically pre-classifies everything into food groups, it allows the enumerators to read back those food items that belong to the same group to the respondent, and then ask them to point to the cube that comes closest in size to the amount that they've consumed. And with that, I wanted to thank you very much. Over to you. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Murad and Winnie, for the great presentation on the interesting work at the Index 24 and Intake Tiers. So now we're going to turn to a little bit of an interactive part of the, of the seminar. As a reminder, we'd like to hear from you too. So please and participate in our Q&A session that will follow the presenter's remarks and submit your questions on ifpri.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by the hashtag AskIfpri on Twitter. So the first question goes to the Franny team in Ghana. And we asked Dr. Gloria Fulton, why is Franny relevant in Ghana? Thank you. Hello, everyone. My name is Gloria Fulton, and I work at the Department of Nutrition at the Noguchi Memorial Institute for Medical Research. I lead the Franny research in Ghana at the moment. Thank you for the question, Aulo, on the extent of Franny's usefulness on the Ghanaian nutrition landscape. Um, by way of summary um, of our nutrition landscape, um, we have high rates of maternal and child anemia at 45% and 66% respectively. We have eight to 10% um, low birth weight, 18% stunting in children under five, 18% um, and 6% respectively overweight in adolescent and adult women and only 27% of children between 6 and 23 months achieve the minimum acceptable diet. And so our nutrition policy has a dedicated first objective to promote optimum nutrition as an essential component of health and development among all people living in Ghana. And it seeks to do this through five um, policy measures promoting optimum infant and ch young child feeding, promoting optimum um, nutrition of women of reproductive age, strengthening nutrition support for vulnerable groups, including the aged and those in emergency situations, promoting nutritionally adequate and safe diets and nutrition services in institutions, and also promoting healthy diets and lifestyle throughout the life cycle. Major gaps have been identified um, in the implementation of the policy. 
which include limited national coverage of most of the nutrition actions, inadequate resources, um, capacity, poor coordination, collaboration, and I dare say um, monitoring and evaluation as well. Most information, electronic information, comes through radio and TV. But recently we know that the internet and social media has become a formidable source of um, information and can be used um, um, positively or constructively um, in nutrition promotion. And so I see Franny as a one-stop shop, if you like, in that it can be a tool for intervention as well as monitoring and evaluation. I'd like to give an example of how Franny is, um, we are piloting Franny in the context of school feeding um, to first and foremost see how school feeding is actually contributing to the diets of school age children and also to monitor exactly what school feeding is offering these children. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much, Gloria. Uh, we now turn to a question uh, for Benny. Um, what is the advantage of using the passive monitoring approach comparing to just asking the participants to use smartphones? Over to you, Benny. Okay, thanks. So, yeah, of course, smartphones, uh, everyone, most people got smartphones, um, um, but uh, the, uh, the, the advantage of using passive approach is that uh, we, uh, by wearing a simple wearable camera, then we keep collecting all the data, so we won't miss anything. So we won't have any problem of misreporting. Like people like me may not like record everything, um, may skip some of the photos. Uh, so having a camera on on a person that will record all those informations, um, and of course it also have uh, disadvantage. Uh, or challenges because we have loads of data uh, and uh, some also some images not related to food. Um, and the other uh, interesting advantage we find that is that actually not uh, not all the places allow people to have smartphone or, or may not want to have smartphone. Uh, so this kind of uh, simple camera device could be a solution in some places which uh, doesn't allow uh, the what they don't like uh, uh, the person using smartphone. Great. Thank you very much, Benny. The next question is for Winnie. Winnie, how does one get access to Index 24? And what steps are required uh, to prepare for a national dietary survey if using Index 24? Great. Thank you. So um, having some computer problems here, but um, uh, the first step would be to contact us at intake. So the email address I think was shared earlier, it's index24 at fhisolutions.org. Um, so if you reach out to us, you'll receive a response and we'd be happy to set up a meeting to discuss um, in more detail how you can access uh, index24. In addition, there are a couple of things that are worth keeping in mind if you're considering conducting a 24-hour um, multiple pass, you know, quantitative dietary survey in your study or country. And um, one of those is the preparation time. So, and this is something that can be easily underestimated. Um, and we typically advise, you know, anywhere from a couple up to six months or so, depending on the size and scale of the survey. And a lot of this preparatory work relates to um, the dietary reference data. So preparing the food list and the food composition information, standard recipes, and starting to think about conversion factors. And this is where the Global Food Matters database comes really 
becomes really relevant and handy. And so, you know, the other step in addition to contacting uh, intake at index24 at fhisolutions.org um, would be to uh, request access to the Global Food Matters database, which I believe also a link was shared. And through that link, you can, um, uh, you'll, you'll receive information as to how to uh, log into the Global Food Matters database, and then you can see the data that are available and begin setting up your own workspace and um, compiling your own data for the study. Um, and from there, I, th I think uh, the, the next steps will become clear um, once that has started. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Will. So now uh, we turn to a question for Moran, a million dollar question, or a million cube question, I should say. Have the cubes used in conjunction with a GDQS mobile application been validated? Um, well, thank you very much for this question. This is actually the the, the question that the that you know comes up the most often when we present you know the uh, the work on the GDQS. Um, it is it is um, if you think about you know the uh, the that dietary uh, uh, quality scores that we've had in the past. The qualification, the thinking about you know like a simple way to get the quantity was always you know the the most difficult, the, the 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 biggest challenge, and so this was the you know our innovation, our proposal you know to solve that challenge. Now um, we ourselves are asking ourselves the same question, and so the, what we've had so far is that we've done like a feasibility study, not a validation study, but a feasibility study in Ethiopia. Uh, where we asked both the, uh, uh, at the same time when we applied the GDQS, we've asked the respondents and also the enumerators who are experienced enumerators to tell us what they thought about, you know, the process of having to think about those foods um, and those cubes and, and trying to think about the quantity. And the story we got from them was largely a very positive one in terms of, so there was, you know, scales, um, liquor scales about, you know, the the ease or difficulty of like grouping the foods and like thinking about the quantities. Some, it was more difficult for some food groups than others, but overall uh, they were able to do it. Uh, the respondents said that they were, that was fine. And also the enumerators who were experienced people, they also uh, said that they thought that the, the data that they got from the enumerators was um, quality data. Uh, of course, that doesn't um, replace a, like a proper validation study. And so this is where we're planning one where we will basically uh, compare the performance of those cubes relative to a uh, 25 recall and also a uh, weight food record like you did for friends. Uh, so that's, uh, that's in the plan. Now, the, the one thing that I'll say about um, uh, the, the use of these cubes is that because the app pre-classifies the foods in the food groups, it takes the burden of the classification of those foods from the respondent and the enumerator. Like, you know, like at no point in time, is any food group mentioned. And so you don't face you know, the difficulties of people thinking about how to classify, you know, uh, or which, you know, which food group do these things belong to. And when you take that burden off and you just ask people to think about the foods together, then this simplifies the process a lot. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Moran. Uh, thanks for describing the, this innovation. We now turn to another question uh, for Benny. Benny, how do you validate the estimation results from the AI techniques? Okay, thanks. So yeah, uh, we we well we use the same approach as probably for the other projects that we use a twenty-four hour recall and also wait for records. And on top of that, we also uh, ask our nutritionists to label the images. So basically, they see the same image as a computer uh, to quantify 
to identify the food items and also quantify uh, the amount of food uh, consumed by the, by the end user. So uh, <clears throat> from our early study, uh, we find that yeah, actually our estimate using the AI is uh, slightly better than human in terms of like, estimating quantity um, compared to the wafer record. So, so which is quite encouraging that we can see that potentially uh, AI can, uh, taking those like laborers tasks, uh, identify the food item and also estimate the consumption. Great, uh, thank you very much, Ben. I also share your um, your positive sort of assessment of sort of the AI and the, the window for how things could happen in in the future. But uh, let's hear let's hear from the Vietnam uh, Franny team in terms of uh, what we can learn uh, from you know the, the experience in Franny and Vietnam. Thank you. Oh, let me introduce. It's Dr. Phuong Goyen from IFPRI. Thank you. Thank you, Arlo, for your question. Um, actually, talking about the experience on the Vietnam team on this project, uh, I would like to say on the behalf of the Vietnam team, uh, we could say that it is a great opportunity for our team to involve in this project. The Nudging for Good is a great experience for our team. It is a true innovative and collaborative project that our team is able to involve in various stages from developing the app, examining the acceptability and feasibility of the app, and validating the app against standard methods such as 24-hour report and bridging methods. Our project has emphasis on professional development and capacity building and combines the strength of junior and senior researchers. Several junior members in Vietnam, Ghana, and USA have engaged in conducting the research and writing publication in collaboration with the senior team member. We hope that the human resources, the capacity building built through this project will continue to conduct public health nutrition researches. So talking about the future plan for the project, as you can see, we plan to have four phases. We have completed the first three phases, including developing the food inventory, prioritize the food, prepare cooking and taking picture, and the intervention design. We also completed the acceptability and feasibility of study and completed validation pilot. We can see that the results are very promising and we plan to conduct the trial on the effectiveness of using the app with adolescent girls to improve diets. We hope that the results from this trial will be widely disseminated nationally and internationally and lesson learned will be documented and considered for future project, program and intervention. Talking about the future plan, we are also committed to seek additional funding and support for continued intervention, continue to improve the, the app to make it more friendly user and more widely applicable. Then we can apply that through either 
existing community or school-based system to improve the diet of adolescents and the health of adolescents. We hope that the sustainability of these health benefits is critical to inform the government on the need to incorporate adolescent health and nutrition into existing policy and programs. Thank you for your attention. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Fun. Thank you so much for the insights on, on the ground. Uh, this uh, Q&A now uh, is ending and it, we are midway through the seminar. And just as a reminder, we really would like to hear from you. So to participate in our Q&A session that will follow the presenter's remarks, please do submit your questions on fp.org, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, YouTube, by using the hashtag AskFP on Twitter. So without further ado, let's turn on to part two of this seminar, which is focusing on the discussion on the policy implications of what we've seen presented so far. Over to you, Shelley. Thank you very much, Alo. And thank you again to everybody for joining us today and to the researchers for presenting the various technological innovations that they've supported um, to improve dietary assessment. Now we will hear from a few discussants to reflect on the presentations that we've heard so far, and then we will pose some of the questions um, to the researchers that come from you, the audience. So as Alo just um, suggested, please, please submit your questions and we will get to them after the discussion portion. So first up, we have um, Jennifer Coates. She's an associate professor and senior researcher at the Feinstein International Center at Tufts University. And also I would add the principal investigator of the INDEX project, which we've heard about from Winnie. Um, over to you, Jenny. Uh, thank you, Shelley, um, and thank you for having me here today. So um, I, um, although I know you had said that this section would be kind of more free-flowing, so I don't have prepared remarks, but um, I'm happy to take a stab at going first. Um, and, you know, just to say that, first of all, it's, it's very exciting um, on at least two different fronts to hear the presentations that we've heard today. So um, you know, on the one hand, you know, hearing about the technological advances that have been made across a number of different um, uh, applications is thrilling, right? We have come so far over the last um, five to seven years. Um, and I guess the second thing that is, that is equally thrilling to me is to see the, the type of collaborative spirit that we're seeing here today. Um, you know, we don't always see this in, in our field and, and, you know, there's a lot of thanks to you, Alo, for bringing us all together and, you know, recognizing the commonalities and the complementarities of this work that everybody here is engaged in. Um, there's certainly enough work to go around. Each of these advances that we're seeing, I think, plays a slightly different role in contributing to what is needed in order to be able to really scale up. Um, dietary assessment globally, right? And so we see that, you know, Franny has a very important role to play. It has um, certain, um, I guess, indications and potentially even, and, but potentially some contraindications at the moment, that's not to say always, right? In that it hasn't necessarily been tested um, for, you know, kind of large scale population use at individual level, um, whereas something like index 24 has, but we also know at the same time, you know, that that index 24 is, you know, continues to be um, 
to require a lot of advanced preparation in some ways. And so then we have the GDQS coming in on the scene, which also contributes to um, the broader toolkit for a whole range of purposes that, that the kind of purely quantitative 24 hour recall data, for instance, might not always be needed for. So I love seeing the complementarities, um, the advances, and then also the collaborative spirit that we're seeing here today. Um, you know, I think that because most of the, I guess maybe all of the um, technology that we've heard about today is, you know, is promoting the collection of data that um, are at, at core kind of quantitative in nature, but can be used to generate qualitative indicators, but also can be used to generate quantitative indicators. Um, it strikes me that, um, you know, the data that are going to be produced from these technologies are going to be a bit more um, multifunctional and multi-purpose than some of the kind of shorter, quicker um, screener um, type um, question questionnaires that we're also seeing developed for the purpose of assessing healthy diets. And that's not to say that that is in some ways uh, that those are in any way inferior, um, but just recognizing that we have a clear um, need to be able to give um, very fit for purpose guidance to users so that they understand um, the range of thing of strengths of the technologies that we're offering, the kinds of uh, questionnaires that are questions that we're asking and the indicators that can be generated from what we're developing, um, you know, vis-a-vis -vis one another. So, um, you know, just, I'll just briefly mention because it, I don't think it's kind of been, it hasn't been rolled out very widely publicly yet, but um, there's a very nice collaboration that we're seeing form um, at the level of the UN agencies um, to try to, uh, through the platform of TEAM, which I participated on, which is the global, um, what does it stand for? Technical Expert Advisory Group on, on Global Nutrition Monitoring. And um, through the Diet Quality Working Group, which is you know, sponsored by FAO, WHO, and UNICEF, um, uh, supported by the Gates Foundation, and then also we have uh, increasing some support from the Rockefeller Foundation, um, there is a real interest in trying to develop guidance that can assist users, I think, sorely in need of, you know, being able to understand what indicators um, can be generated from what tools and used for which purposes. So what are the relative strengths and weaknesses? Um, so one other point that I guess I'd like to make, um, which I think is common to all of the different platforms that we've heard about today, is, um, is that, you know, we've made great strides um, through these through these various platforms in figuring out how to collect dietary information, right? And um, several of you have alluded to the fact, though, that you know there is front-end work that needs to be done in order to implement these various tools in different contexts. And so, I would love us to have some more discussion here about how we can make, you know those great strides that need to be made in the realm of a really unsexy thing, but it is absolutely critical, which is the dietary reference data, right? So how can we pool resources um, to build out the databases that we need in order to, to have uh, food lists, the dietary um, food composition data, 
and other key factors that will then be able to feed into using whichever platform is most well suited to whichever purpose in, in a range of contexts. So I think we're finding, we find with, you know, um, having used index 24 in a range of environments that that, you know, continues to be a constraining factor in terms of the time and resources required. And we know that that will naturally decrease with time as data get built out in the FMDB, but that's slow going. So, you know, how can we accelerate this process? And, and, and can we use AI um, toward this end? So, so I'll, I'll stop there, but I think those are some things that we could talk about some more. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, Jenny. And thanks for drawing some of the linkages and complementarities between some of the technologies that have been presented today. Um, next, we'll turn to Linda Keese. She's the Senior Program Advisor for Nutrition at the World Food Program. Linda, over to you. You're on mute, Linda. Not yet. Can you hear me now? Yes, we can hear you now. Great. Thank you. Sorry about that. Um, okay, so um, again, I was just saying thanks to IFPRI um, and uh, for organizing this and for, um, as Shirley mentioned, bringing together the, the different actors. I'm going to focus a little bit more kind of on the um, the implementation and, and the use of the potential use for a lot of these tools. And I must start just by saying really the timing for this and for this discussion is really perfect. Um, there's a lot of great, uh, there's more attention and visibility around the importance of healthy diets. There's also a greater interest in making social protection programs more nutrition sensitive. There's been a lot of work also around school health and nutrition programs in promoting the importance of healthy diets as one of the critical outcomes for that. Um, so, so I think, you know, being able to measure the, the impacts of these different programs is critical because we really do want to, with all this increased attention, we want to be able to demonstrate results and that we're actually being able to, to translate the interest and the energy and the engagement into better diets for, for the more vulnerable groups that, that we're reaching. And again, I think the, the new um, AI tools that have been discussed, uh, I think they exemplify the, you know, the importance of information that we need, that we need information to be able to make program adjustments. And that's also been very clear in COVID. Um, and it's clear again in the, in, in, in the current global food crisis where in order for services to be responsive, for clients to be informed, we need better data because we really want to make changes quickly um, and ensure that people can continue to access healthy diets and that we can continue to access services which are gonna improve their, their nutrition and health situation. Um, I think Marie made the comment kind of about, you know, what gets measured um, gets done. Um, and I kind of agree with that. Um, but there tend to be a couple steps between kind of data collection and data use. And so I think that's again where these AI tools really come into, um, into play because it's also about who measures it, when is it measured, how is it measured, and exactly what are we measuring and what are we intending to do with the information that we have. So timing is really important. And these tools will actually give us much more real-time data um, and engage people uh, to, you know, to make changes now rather than at the end of a project, which is you know several years later. 
Um, I think what gets, measured, what gets measured is coming back to what Jennifer just mentioned also about what are we trying to, to change and what are we using these indicators for and then the tools and, and all the aligning to what we're trying to do. And then who, I think, again, the, the way these tools are engaging the, the implementers, they're engaging the community, they're engaging the, the clients themselves, the recipients, is really important because they get motivated, they're encouraged, they're um, empowered to actually really make changes, um, just not just around the project, but more broadly in the communities and, and continuing way beyond kind of the, the period of the intervention. So I think, you know, making sure that we're engaging, um, engaging people at, at a regular time is, is important. And then I think, you know, it's great to see tools and and the rollout. We just want to kind of, in the end, keep it as simple as possible so that we can scale this up um, and we can incorporate it into national systems um, so that we, um, so so that you know, ownership really lies with with national governments and and even at subnational level, and to some extent also with communities. So that this is something that's a lasting, um, a lasting a tool that will continue to be used and really have an impact. Thanks very much. Great, thank you very much, Linda. Um, we appreciate your clear call for better dietary data to improve services for the most vulnerable and emphasizing the importance of improving the use of data, not just the collection, but also the use to inform programs and policies. Um, our next discussant is Arlene Mitchell. She's the executive director of the Global Child Nutrition Foundation. Arlene, thanks for joining us and over to you. Hi, Shelley, and thank you. And thanks to Alo for bringing us all together. It's, it, it really is kudos to Alo, um, this collaborative event, so really appreciate it. Um, I am not a researcher, or nor am I a technology person. So, so my remarks might be a little bit different, but hopefully they'll be relevant. When I think of food, I think of it in a whole set of factors. Uh, what about the production? What about the nutrition value, nutritional value? What about the quantity we're consuming? What about the quality and safety of what we're consuming? What about the taste of what we're consuming? Um, and What's the impact of what we're consuming on, on, on bodies and on psychology, et cetera? Um, I also think when we talk about technology or changes in food systems, et cetera, I think about it at a number of different levels. I work in the field of school feeding. So my first thought is, what about the children? And uh, if, if I were a parent, it would be what about my child or my, uh, my grandchild? What about it for myself? What will this do for me and my own consumption or food uh, practices? What about my organization? I work for the Global Child Nutrition Foundation. What are the implications of new tools and food issues on, on our work and on the, the work of our, our um, field in general, our field of school feeding, our field of nutrition, our field of, uh, of child uh, welfare. And then we deal um, frequently with governments. I worry about what the US government, my own government is doing. I worry about uh, our work with uh, governments around the world and how they um, apply policies and practices that, that feed their children. Um, and then um, 
in the in this context, I start to try to assess the value of tools versus the cost of those tools, and and so we we worry about uh, cost to an individual, we worry about cost to society and the economy, and we worry about kind of the cost for the research um, results produced in the case of these kinds of tools. So, so in the end, I come to a question on, on tools such as this about who we are actually serving and what kinds of potential negative implications there might be. I saw the, the photos, for example, with the camera on the shoulder, I think it was that, that showed um, a young girl seated with her hand in her lap. How much more of her body would we be seeing with these tools? What are the implications to privacy and to, to individual integrity in using these tools? Um, what about behavior change and the kinds of societal pressures and expectations they are? There are placed particularly on girls in terms of what's accept, acceptable in body shape or what's acceptable about eating or not eating. And how, does, how do these tools factor into um, the whole psychology and, and pressures uh, on behavior? Um, and what is the cost of, if, if this does result in dietary changes, which uh, ideally we would like to see improved um, nutrition resulting from use of these tools, but what does that, what does that imply in terms of cost to family? or to individual for more nutritious food. Um, it may well uh, result in someone wanting to eat better, uh, better food, but if they can't afford it or it's not available, you would still have that kind of an impact. So I come back to um, a comment that a, a friend of mine made a while back about technology isn't an answer, it's a tool that can amplify both problems and positive aspects of work. Um, and, I, and, and this issue of ownership and impact and um, questions of privacy, et cetera, to me become extremely important, particularly when we're talking about global scale and potential policy impact. So thanks very much. And I hope you find these comments valuable. Thanks very much, Arlene. Um, really appreciate you emphasizing the overall importance of food policy to children in particular and weighing the value of these tools against potential costs. Some of the costs may be non-financial like the privacy issue that you mentioned. Thank you. Next, we'll hear from David Hughes. Um, David is the Huckster in Global Food Security at Penn State University and the director of the USAID Innovation Lab on current and emerging threats to crops. David, over to you. Thank you. Super. Thank you so much for allowing me to join. Uh, apologies, I wasn't here earlier. We, we were presenting to the USAID uh, mission in Haiti. Um, so I, I think what's really impactful for me is what David Beasley said to the Senate last week uh, in, in the Senate address. Uh, he was there with uh, Ambassador uh, Thomas Greenfield and, and Administrator Samantha Power. Um, we are in a global food crisis um, and, and the cost of production of food in WFP is now $70 million more expensive per month 
than it was before because of the the, the increase in in prices of gas because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. <clears throat> the terrifying thing he said was that they can possibly deal with that increase in price if the donors give money, but donors are exhausted, as we know. The problem is that in 2023, we're going to run out of food to drop out of the airplanes. So even if we can afford to fly the airplanes, we don't have food in the back of the airplanes to give away or, or to have school meals or et cetera, et cetera. And I don't think we've really uh, internalized this. I, I think the, the conversations that we often have are about a series of questions which could be important or would be great if we had a luxury, uh, but I don't think we have those luxuries uh, at the moment. Um, so I think we we have to leverage the power of technology in order to solve multiple problems at once. So, so one of them is how can we have a quantification of the food which is being served in schools? So it's apparently a $70 billion industry reaching 300 million kids a day, but we don't know what's happening in the schools. We don't know the, what's happening with the food. We don't know the quality and the quantity. And it's highly likely that what we want to be delivered is not being delivered. At the same time, we also want to make sure that those schools are able to have local production um, and, and the same phone can enable local production. So, so the plant village platform, which drives nudging for good, drives the UNFAO locust platform or, or fall army one platform or the current and emerging threats to crops innovation lab that I'm the director of, it, it drives that platform. So these platforms enable a global solution to food production as well as nutrition. The issue of privacy, so I just came in at the end, but the issue of privacy is, is, is critical, but is it the most driving important issue? Because we've all surrendered our privacy to Google with no problem. And, and we operate uh, in a world where Google can see everything and understand everything. Um, if we don't do it in the public space, enabling food nutrition to be quantified and, 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 and understood, then Fitbit will do it. And if Fitbit does it, we don't get to see that data whatsoever. Despite the, the negative consequences of Google on, say, the presidential elections in America, we don't get to see what that search algorithm is. Despite the effect of TikTok on teen behavior, we don't get to see what that algorithm is and, and nobody's able to uncover it. So it's particularly incumbent that if we are doing a diagnostic service, that we make sure that IFPRI or University of Ghana are really front and center in our, in our decision-making about this. Because if we don't, we will absolutely re repeat the errors of Theranos. And, and for those who don't know, Theranos was this, you know, really important Silicon Valley approach where with a single drop of blood, we could diagnose all manner of things. And now the, the uh, CEO is in prison for this. Uh, because when, you're, when you have a diagnostic service in the private sector, you are incentivized to overstate your ability to diagnose. And, and you know, taking risks with, with children's diets given the fact that food production is so hampered and imperiled. So unfortunately, because we have delayed so long and because the effects of climate change are so great, uh, we have to do multiple things at once. Now, the good thing, the good news is the platform technology allows us to do this. So the reason we were able to respond so effectively to COVID is we had the mRNA vaccine through Gavi and others. And so something built for Zika, was able to be designed for COVID. So in 11 days, we had the first uh, tentative structure of the vaccine after the 
uh, the sequence was published, 11 months that was in people's arms. So really, really important responses. The Plant Village platform allows us to deal with climate change, food, nutrition, and a host of other problems coming down the pike at the same way. And I, I get that bell was for me to shut up. Um, so I'll shut up there and thank you all for inviting me. Thank you very much, David. Um, very much appreciate you bringing the important issue of climate change into the discussion, its impact on food production, nutrition, and health, and also some of the risks that we need to pay attention to in dietary assessment, building on what Arlene mentioned in her comments. Um, before we turn it over to Q&A, we're almost there and a lot of great questions have come in. So that's wonderful. Thanks a lot and, and keep them coming. We'll have um, a good amount of time to address them. I just want to make a few remarks myself. And I would mainly like to emphasize that I think we have an unprecedented opportunity today because there's increasing recognition of the linkages between food systems, diets, human health, and planetary health. All those, all those factors come together. And in the last oh, five years or so, there's been a, a very significant uptick in governments undertaking national level surveys, not small surveys like we've had for the last several decades, but nationally representative surveys to understand what foods their populations are consuming and how dietary patterns are shifting. And these dietary data, as we've heard from various speakers, can inform a host of agriculture, health, environmental, social protection, and educational programs and policies. So we have an unprecedented opportunity there to have more evidence-based programs and policies. And technology can very much assist governments in this endeavor. So we've heard today that the research community can really help to improve the quality of the data and decrease the cost of obtaining it with, by developing and validating new technologies. So that's really promising. We can have a more efficient data collection process, hopefully more accurate data collection and analysis with these technologies. Next, once governments have these estimates of what their populations are consuming, they need metrics to be able to characterize the diets of their populations and of specific demographic groups within the populations, both with respect to, to human health and to planetary health. How healthy is this diet? What's its impact on water use, land use, greenhouse gas emissions, for example? And we're just on the verge of having those type of metrics to be able to help governments, again, make evidence-based programs and policies to address human health and planetary health. We're looking forward, as Jenny mentioned, to guidance from the UN agencies, WHO, FAO, and UNICEF, um, on which metrics and tools are appropriate for various objectives in dietary assessment. There's really a fair amount of confusion, I would say, about all the metrics and tools that are out there. And I think governments will really welcome some guidance from the normative agencies. So it's, it's great to see today that we have technologies in various states of development that can assist governments in meeting their objectives in these areas. So thanks, thanks for all the researchers um, making that progress. And thanks to IFPRI for organizing the seminar to, to present all this important work. Now we're going to turn it over to the questions from the audience. And as I mentioned, we have many of them. So thanks very much for bringing those in. And I'll address them to who I think um, might be best positioned to answer them. But if any of the other speakers would like to come in, please feel free. So the first question is from Eric Boy at Harvest Plus, And it's a question about Franny. So Allah, that's going to be for you or any of your team members. Um, he asks, once fully validated, Will the Franny app and training for use be made available, number one, under license, number two, at a fee, or will it be freely available? 
And three, will it be available in languages other than English? So Ella, over to you. Thank you very much, Shelley. <clears throat> I'll pass the difficult part to, to David, actually, <laughs> about um, the, the licensing. And we, we, we're currently, as, as you know, at the sort of piloting and, and the feasibility stage. So part of the work that we're doing now is to coming up, come up with a business model to be able to answer that. But I think David has some fine examples of, of the way Plant Village has handled things. I'll just answer the easy one, which is about the languages. And um, right now, the, the way Franny, and thank you, Eric, <laughs> thanks for your, all your support and interest in this. So it's quite easy to customize the, the language and to translate the front end. We currently have it in both English and Vietnamese, but it's, it's easily translatable and we're planning to, to work on the French version this quarter. And uh, Hopefully, the the you know be able to, to scale it up to, to other countries, including translation, will happen uh, soon after that. David, do you want to add something on on on, on the yes. license? Yeah, yeah, we we don't we don't know what what we're going to do. Um, we, we, Al and I came together at a Gates meeting in Berlin and talked about wouldn't it be great if you could wave a phone over food and, and have a dietary assessment? And here we are. Um, now the really important part is how do we scale? Franny to the same scale that Plant Village is at. And Plant Village operates in 60 countries and 30 languages for the UN and Gates Foundation and, and, and USAID and so on and so forth. So the good news is we have a template going forward. Um, we're really open to lots of these discussions. What we're very mindful of not doing is privatizing it such that nobody gets to see underneath the hood because that would be a disaster. Um, but we're about to get some funding from the Gates Foundation for our agricultural work and modeling and, and, and engine. So at least that reduces the cost to the foundation going forward, but also has that synergy because we're also talking about sustainability. We're working with USAID and NORAD on sustainability in different places. And so I think this is a really grown up conversation we all need to have. We can't keep on pouring in resources to a system that's not working. We're, we're more food insecure now than we were in 2014. Um, but we have to have a realistic conversation. So I'd be really keen to continue with the audience out there on, on practical ways that we can all benefit from this technology going forward. Great. Thank you very much, Alo and David. The next question is also about Franny. Um, this is from Mamkrit Chada from Nutrition International. And he asked, to, to determine the Franny per assessment cost, what has been considered given that setting up such tools could be expensive and how would economies of scale affect these costs? So again, a, a finance question about Franny. People want to get down to the nuts and bolts. Yeah, thank you, Rachelle. And thank you very much, Manpreet. Uh, good to hear from you. Um, it's a very good question. So we haven't co completed the economic evaluation of, of Franny, uh, but what's clear is that the, the heavy lift uh, i.e. the startup cost has been incurred now, thanks to Fondation Botna, who you made the, that first investment. Um, the scale-up costs are now going to be at the margin. So if you're looking to scale up in countries like Vietnam, like Fong was talking about, I mean, the next step is really to see first that Franny works at a slightly larger scale. Um, and the, the cost to do that are essentially running a trial. Um, the cost of using Franny at scale um, are limited to the cost of accessing data. Um, we're not calculating the opportunity cost of, of you know, of, of using Franny, uh, you know, th that will be part of the economic evaluation, but 
really as the acceptability study really did suggest that um, adolescents in particular didn't find you know time burden being excessive in, in, in this type of with this type of app. Um, and that was key, I think, to getting the high quality adherence data that you know we kind of presented earlier on. Um, clearly the potential for um, scaling up is huge. Uh, clearly in countries like Vietnam, when most people have a smartphone already, the, I mean, the idea is to have Franny available on the Play Store so people could download it for free and use it, you know, potentially as part of their um, streaming data package that they have already. Um, Franny potentially in Vietnam would be ready to go, conditional on, on, on the trial uh, being uh, completed and suggesting that Franny is working well. In countries where Franny has not yet been uh, um, sort of uh, prepared, so right now we only have it run uh, in Ghana and Vietnam, the costs to, to get it going are really the part to get the AI model trained. And we've got a good team in place now, and, and we're building sort of capacity in regional hubs to be able to sort of to take on this additional um, work to be able to sort of um, incorporate these new these new models, these new food recognition models that we take, for example, in Benin, which is a, a planned country for for scale up, and the cost, you know, to get that first model going range about $30,000 um, just to get the app the app going and then potentially the user base you know we're talking about the adolescents in that in in that country right so the cost per beneficiary would really become pretty pretty small very very quickly thank you Shelley thank you Rollo Benny the next question is for you um, it's an anonymous question this person is asking how willing were um, people to participate in your study, um, mainly, I guess, in Ghana, because that's where you've done your field study so far. As this person can imagine having a camera around, either, um, you know, a stationary camera or a wearable camera may have made some people uncomfortable. So could you talk a little bit about acceptability yeah. of the technology? Thank you. Okay. Right. So uh, from our study, um, <clears throat> uh, we approached quite a number of, of uh, participants in, in Ghana. And so far, the feedback are very positive that most or, uh, most of them are happy to wear the camera. And because the camera is uh, with two form factor, one is just on the glasses, uh, clip on the glasses, and the other is like a badge. So the camera, well, it's relatively light, quite easy to wear. Uh, so they don't have any problem wearing them. And the camera actually is positioned or angled towards like what you're uh, going to eat, so looking in front and down, rather than looking at like, the surrounding environments. Um, and the, they don't have any any issue with that uh, when the camera, because they understand that we are we are collecting data, mainly looking at the food uh, intake. And we did have like uh, childrens and parents like wearing the wearing the camera uh, for all their studies. And Benny, could you say a little bit about the mounted cameras too that are in the eating area or the cooking preparation area? How yeah. how those how are those, accepted? Yeah. So we uh, for because we want to also look into the food preparations. Uh, so we have uh, a set of uh, camera which is mounted on the like kind of looking down view when we talk in their kitchens, and for those. Uh, 
little bit more difficult to sell up because it takes a little bit to, to, to mount it up on the on the top to looking down in the cooking area. And of course, I uh, we have not received any complaints or any, any issue regarding just recording like, the, the cookings. Uh, so, so it's relatively acceptable. Um, but of course, compared to wearable cameras, uh, wearable cameras is easier because they just put it on. And, and if they don't like it, they can take it off at any time. So that's uh, fairly straightforward. Um, uh, so require almost no, no setup at all. So relatively easy. For the mounting, the camera, it takes a bit of installation time and yeah, it, it is a little bit not easy. So it has to be done by our team uh, or the few, uh, in the field uh, itself. Great, thank you very much. Um, our next question is also an anonymous question, but the questioner comes from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. So they've identified um, their location. And this person asks, I was wondering if you have an application that calculates the intake of diets per recipe or per portion. So I don't know if Winnie or Murad or Jenny would like to address that. I, I don't think it's technology specific. Great, thank you. I can start by responding and then happy to have colleagues chime in. Um, so the answer is yes, in the sense that if you are using, um, in this case, let's say index 24, which is a 24 hour recall method, um, you can, you could easily isolate um, an eating occasion with a specific uh, recipe that's been consumed and then the corresponding portion. And so by doing that, you could then analyze, um, you know, the, the diets that correspond to that recipe and that portion consumed. Some of this um, depends a bit on, I think without having maybe more context around how you'd like to use this information, it's hard to respond in lots more detail, but I think the bottom line answer is yes, it's possible. The other thing that I would just highlight in the case of Index 24 is that we, um, the, the Global Food Matters database, which I mentioned, um, allows for use of standard recipes. And this really um, eases the data collection process when you're in the field because it allows respondents to report the recipe and if it adheres to the standard average, then the enumerator doesn't need to collect all the detailed information on each ingredient that goes in. Um, and so that's a really useful thing to keep in mind, um, which has also been adopted in other methods as well. So um, I guess I'll ask Morad and Jenny both if you have anything else you wanna add or anybody else on the panel. Thanks, Winnie. I think you covered it very well for Index 24. Um, I don't know if anybody else for the other platforms would like to chime in. No, nothing to add. Index24 is the platform to go for if you want to have information about the composition of recipe. Yeah. From Franny, Alo, do you want to say anything? I think that this is just one of the points that can help clarify like where you can get quantitative portions and, and yeah, where there are advantages from some apps versus the others. Yeah, maybe this is a good point, Ed, to say that, you know, what Franny, um, has been doing is really leveraging all the work that the Index 24 team has done on Global Food Matters. So everything that the Winnie has said sort of is, is what Franny does. What Franny does is allows you to, to estimate portion sizes, but then sort of taps on, on the underlying data that Winnie was presenting to get you to those um, individual ingredient and, and nutrient calculations. So in Vietnam, for example, we are actually using exports from the Index 24 database as imports to our data. 
One of the things we'd like to do is actually make that interaction seamless. That's something we'd really love to do as, as part of the, the, the next uh, wave of development and really make, incorporate all this work around recipes and food composition to make it sort of seamless with the portion size estimate, automatic portion size estimation, to be able to do it all in one go using sort of the state of the art data and technology. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, Benny, do you want to say a word about what your technology is doing with respect to sort of testing you're doing on portion size estimation? Yeah, so for the portion size, yeah, um, we are using, because our image is a little bit more complex and, and looking at a, not a direct uh, downward angle. So we, we're taking quite a number of different approaches to get the portion size, estimate the portion size. Uh, we, in fact, have this three or four different methods. Uh, most of them are deep learning methods. So to try to estimate the portion size. So in one, uh, we're trying to ask, one method we're trying to is to uh, uh, like estimate the, uh, the, the plate size, uh, getting the plate size as a reference and then estimate the actual portion size uh, of portions uh, on the plate. And the other, which I, I, I showed you earlier is looking at like, um, the counting number of bytes in a way as a means of like quantifying the intake. Uh, it's not perfect, but of course, uh, uh, it's uh, 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 what we call a progressive way of measuring. So it doesn't require the user to enter anything. Um, and it's, uh, it's the advantage, of course, disadvantage is that it may not be as accurate as you enter yourself. Of course, um, this is the, uh, the, the way we're, we're trying to push it is to be as automatic or, or passive uh, as much as possible. Great. Thank you all for talking about um, how, how your particular technology can address estimates of actual portion size so we can get to quantitative intakes. Um, the next question is actually for all the for technologies. Um, it's an anonymous question. And they ask in LMICs, low and middle income countries, where do you see your tool um, for data collection being integrated in surveys such as DHS? So I think it'd be great if um, Franny, the Passive Imaging Index 24 and GDQS could each just briefly mention what sort of survey platforms you see your technology potentially being able to be used with. Um, let's start with index 24. Sure. Thank you, great question. Um, so the, you know, it, the index 24 platform and a 24 hour recall conducted with index 24 based on our studies in Vietnam and Burkina Faso, we found ranged anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes. So just keep that in the back of your mind in terms of the length of just conducting a 24 hour recall. It's not a 10 minute thing that could be easily inserted into something like a demographic and health survey necessarily, um, because it is time consuming. The, you know, I think the primary kind of survey platform for Index 24, and Jenny also mentioned this, is really um, the ideal scenario would be large scale surveys, large scale nutrition surveys um, in these contexts, uh, because through those, you'll really see the added benefit of using Index 24. Of course, we've had smaller studies adopt Index 24, and that works as well. The other thing that I'll just mention that wasn't highlighted in my presentation is that the technology platform in which Index 24 is built can also have other modules built alongside it. So, you know, if you're 
in your survey conducting, collecting also information on socio-demographic information and infant and young child safety practices, all of that can be programmed in alongside the index 24 module. So, and that's typically how it's been used to date in um, existing studies. So, there. Great, thanks, Winnie. Um, Morad, over to you to discuss how GDQS, what sort of survey platforms might be feasible for that. So um, I think of all the methods we discussed today, GDQS is, uh, is probably the one that um, has the, you know, the greatest chance, uh, greatest chance of being integrated in, in those uh, platforms. However, it's still not as easy as, you know, the MDDW or like the Women Dietary Diversity Score or the Infant and Child, Young Child Feeding Score. Uh, that score. Um, it's still, it, it requires between 10 and 20 minutes. It's still an open recall. Uh, which is different from, you know, the list-based methods that you can easily integrate in, into, you know, uh, surveys like the DHS. Um, however, um, the use of the app and the technology and the fact that you have a database that's, um, that is, uh, that is pre with all the pre-classified, you know, food and globally uh, should allow, you know, potential users to really uh, decrease the load and the, the and also the the you know the training requirements and uh, just you know the burden on the respondents and the enumerators to, uh, to to do that do that work. But still, I don't want to I don't want to you know mislead anybody in thinking that it doesn't require you know some substantial preparation and um, and uh, not not so much training, but it's still quite an investment of time, uh, even in the context uh, context of those surveys. Thank you, Morad. Um, Alo, over to you for potential survey platforms for Franny. Yeah, I'll start and maybe then pass to Gloria, my colleague in Ghana, who has you know very direct experience of, of uh, how to use Franny in a real world context. So I think the difference between uh, <clears throat> some of the tools that we presented earlier is sort of Franny and, and, and the technology that Benny presented is sort of recording as you consume rather than doing a recall, right? So essentially what, what that entails is that essentially if you wanted to integrate Franny in, in a DHS, you, you, you'd have people with a mobile phone download that app and essentially as they go about their day, attract their food consumption. Okay, so take pictures and interact with the app so that that, that food is recorded. That's a sort of very different way of going about, uh, you know, our standard dietary assessment methods. So we're still in the process of, of, of trying to, to see how, how well that works at scale, but we've seen at the small scale that it is quite uh, not only um, accurate, but it's also uh, quite feasible. And I'll ask Gloria maybe to touch a little bit on her experience of having users, two users, right? Adolescents and school-age kids, you know, walking around with Franny essentially during a sort of 24 hour period. How, how feasible and what, what kind of experiences did they use? Yeah, um, like, like you said, Aulo, what Franny does is records as you go, as opposed to um, the recall that we get in DHS. Um, so having kids um, hold the phone um, more or less from morning to evening um, it's it it's 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 very feasible. Um, we've had them take phones to school, and um, pull them out when they are eating, um, take pictures. It's not a very um, hard to use tool. 
um, doesn't take much time. And these kids are really good with the smartphone. So, um, yeah. So if if it's feasible and goes smoothly um, with school age kids, then I would imagine it would be even easier um, for adults to handle. Thank you, Gloria and Alo. Um, Benny, oh, your technology, oh, sorry. sorry. I'm sorry, could I hop in here just quickly? Um, ahead, the Global Child Nutrition Foundation uh, conducts global surveys of school meal programs. And we see Franny as an excellent complement to that because what we're collecting is data at the national level about what programs intend to feed children and what the menus include, but actually knowing what the children are eating and what their plate uh, contains, et cetera, is, it would be a wonderful complement to our work as well. Great, thanks for making that connection, Arlene. Um, Benny, your technology is a little earlier in its development. Is there anything you want to say about potential survey platforms or you're welcome to pass? Uh, yeah, well, we're a little bit uh, <laughs> earlier compared to the other technologies, uh, but uh, unlike the smartphone, of course, that uh, we have to send a device out to the participants, uh, but the device itself is uh, relatively low cost. So we can potentially post it out and then the participant can just wear them uh, and then once, uh, like say over a few days or for over a week, and then and then send us back the uh, device, then we can get all the data. So similar to others, I mean, we can collect all this data, then probably upload to the survey to to do a, a detailed survey on the uh, nutrition intake. Right. Thank you. And Benny, this next question is for you. So stay stay right there. Um, this is an anonymous question. How many unique dishes did your studies um, have with the 700,000, 1 million, and 2 million images that you showed? How much um, did multiple images for each dish improve the accuracy of your models? Okay, so the first question is, I don't have the answer. <laughs> we, we haven't counted how many unique dishes. Uh, uh, so for the study one, the first study about 700,000 uh, images, uh, we prepared the meal, uh, uh, but uh, for a few uh, a few days. Uh, but the the other study, we just keep recording. So uh, each meal probably they have a few dishes in each family. So we haven't really count how many how many dishes. And the second question is uh, about multiple images. Of course, having more images uh, on the same dishes, it does help because uh, it will kind of giving us a bit more confidence in terms of the recognition and also in terms of uh, understanding uh, the, the consumptions. So not just like what's on the plate, how, they, how much they have consumed. This is something which will help with more images of the dishes. Great, thank you very much. Um, next question is for Franny and it's um, anonymous. And I'm gonna ask um, the respondents to be perhaps a little more concise in your responses so we can try to get through all the questions in the remaining time. How will you maintain or how will you make Franny attractive to adolescents? Private companies have teams making A-B tests of features in food. Will the slow process of IRBs, institutional review boards be a barrier with Franny? Thanks, Shelley. Great question. So we actually embedded quite a lot of the uh, pretests and, and formative work in our original IRB uh, application. So we actually included a lot of um, <clears throat> sessions with uh, adolescents 
as you are developing we have to get feedback and it was unbelievable and how incredibly useful it was just to spend time with users to not only fine tune what you had in mind but really um actually understand what adolescents think is actually cool compared to what you think is actually cool because the two things are very different um so i think we've embedded that key step in in the rollout of uh, of franny um and you know envisioned continuing to do that as as we sort of add additional functionality so we've embedded it into our research and development process so that you know we don't really lose time by asking for approvals if we ask it all in advance if you know what i mean Right, thanks. Um, a few more questions about Franny. Maybe I'll just group these together for efficiency's sake. As diets change in a setting like Ghana, along with broader transformations to the food system, do you envision that the Franny tool will also evolve? So that's the first one. And then what specific input do you need to use Franny? Um, and that's from Buzi um, Mazia Dixon at IITA in Nigeria. And then a last question about Franny from Anonymous is, in which country is this Nudging for Good, the Franny project, ongoing? Thank you, Shelley. My head is still a little cloudy, so I might have missed. You can come back. <laughs> can come back. Uh, I'm gonna, the first question, I think I'm going to pass to, to Gloria. Let's take advantage of Gloria being in Ghana to answer that. Um, <clears throat> Gloria, do you want to have a go? Sorry, what was the first question again? As, as, as diets are changing, food systems are, you know, transforming in Ghana, do you envision that the Franny tool will also need to evolve? Um, I think I think it could if we um, end up with foods that we haven't yet included in Franny. I mean, then we would have to um, update the database that we have. So, yes, I think Franny could and should evolve as okay. things change, yes. So it has that flexibility. And then what, what's the specific input needed to use the Franny? Yeah, so the, the thing about using Franny is that um, it's essentially, um, a game. the way we've designed it, it's, it's like a game. Um, so you, you essentially start up the day, decide what, what goals you set yourself for the day, and then start taking pictures to record your food intake. And then you start getting feedback from Franny saying, oh, look, you've achieved your goals. Oh, look, you know, why don't you try this and this and that? And so it's, it's, it's sort of um, a very sort of gamified way of doing dietary assessment. There's also, of course, the control app, which is very, very serious and just records uh, your food consumption. But the, the, the Franny itself, you just need a, a mobile phone, be able to log in. And, and then essentially, I think, be, to be honest, yeah, you need to be literate. That for now is, 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 is an important prerequisite. So we we are thinking about uh, having a, a version that allows um, lower literacy level. And to some degree, that kind of also may explain some of the differences we saw in Vietnam and, and in Ghana in the validation studies, because the cross sections of the two study populations were also very different. Purposively in, in Ghana, we really went across the whole socioeconomic spectrum. And that's why to some degree, the performance dropped a little bit from 25 recall. But also, we kind of expect that Franny uh, literacy issues uh, came to the fore. But the point about evolving is, is, is key. And I think this is one of the things where technology and partnerships can really help to keep improving, keep raising the bar. I mean, the work that Benilo's team has been doing at Imperial on, you know, the portion and volume estimation has just been phenomenal. And, you know, compared to our 
very unsophisticated way of sort of squashing a pancake and counting pixels. You know, you can only see if we could actually integrate uh, some of these, uh, these, these, these approaches together, how, how well this, this technology could actually evolve. So we do see this as something that is just the start. And, and, and we hope to keep introducing these innovations as, and to improve the performance as we, as we learn more about the tool. And lastly, I'll quickly, um, in which countries is Franny or the Nudging for Good project ongoing, or is that to be determined? So we have Ghana and Vietnam, and now we're bringing in Sri Lanka and um, Benin. Okay, thank you. Um, next question is from Anonymous, and Alo, you just addressed part of this. They ask, do you see the accuracy of the tools being moderated by the socioeconomic group in low and middle income countries? So Alo just made the point that Franny actually requires some level of literacy to be able to use. Um, Winnie and Morad, could you um, answer that question for your technology? Is there, is there any variation by socioeconomic group? So, um, Willie, do you want me to ask or uh, to answer also for uh, index and uh, Bonifar recall? Sure, sure, that works, and I can yeah. add. Yeah. So, so I don't have the you know the literature that would have looked you know at the accuracy of the Bonifar recall for socioeconomic status in in, in my in head, but uh, off the top of my head, however, what I can say is that the uh, the Bonifar recall as a method has been used in very different contexts, you know, like urban context, rural context, with different age groups, and with you know, with a, and it doesn't require literacy because, you know, in the case when you're using uh, somebody who's doing the interview as opposed to some in some, um, uh, you know, higher income countries where the user like answers on a web um, on a website. Um, and so what, what we what we what we have seen is, is that it consistently if, if done well, uh, if you respect, you know, the state of the art, you know, um, way of doing the method, it consistently del delivers reliable results from all of those different contexts and countries. So I don't think that the SES level interferes. And uh, therefore, by extension, I don't think that it also interferes with the uh, GDQS, which uses only a subset of the 24-hour or multi-pass 24-hour recall and, um, and, uh, and is even, you know, like uh, simpler in terms of thinking about the, the, just the, the just the food group combined instead of the individual food group. Penny, anything you want to add? Okay. Thanks. Um, this next question is from Jerry Ida Ode, a lecturer at um, Benoa State University in Makordi. Um, and this is really getting at the policy implications um, and use of, of these tools. So besides data collection, what strategies are put in place in terms of collaboration with necessary government or non-governmental bodies for such data to lead to the formulation of enduring policies? across the globe. So that linkage between collecting the dietary data and the sorts of policies that can be informed. Jenny, I don't know if you wanna take a stab at this. Sure thing, um, I will try. Yeah, so I guess, um, you know, speaking, I guess more specifically about some of the, the quantitative data, dietary data that we're talking about here, um, we have, evidence, and I, I will give a shout out to this really excellent um, state of dietary <clears throat> global report on the state of dietary data that intake and FAO um, have put together in collaboration with a number of different countries in which they, they spotlight the, the policy processes and uses of dietary data that many different countries have, um, have engaged in. 
So I just, I mentioned that, um, suggest that you refer to it if you haven't seen it, maybe uh, I can drop the link in the chat in a second. Um, but in terms of, you know, what kinds of policy applications are there for these kinds of data? They're very wide, uh, you know, from um, using quantitative dietary data to develop dietary guidelines, to develop um, food labeling, including front of package labeling, um, to inform fortification policies and other kinds of regulatory actions, um, to inform fiscal policies, such as um, sugar sweetened beverages taxation, um, as well as other policies related to the food environment. So I think you know, your question about how does that happen is a really good one. And um, you know, I think we're, we're beginning to understand better um, you know, how, to, how to support these kinds of, of uh, what has herefore to been, I think, a big gap between evidence and action. Mm -hmm. um, and it, we continue to see gaps. Um, but what is great is to see countries own the process of collecting and using their data and knowing that you know, kind of the more we can support um, getting from data to actual information, um, indicators that are very useful in the policy context, the more likely we are to see um, people, uh, policymakers take up that data in a, in a timely way. So we need for it to be simple, rapid, take advantage of policy windows. And you know, a lot of that is not something that dietary data has in the past been known for. So <clears throat> the advances that we've heard about today should help bridge those policy gaps. Thanks very much, Jenny. And for those who are further interested in this issue of how dietary data can be used to inform um, policies and programs across a variety of sector sectors, Intake is preparing some guidance um, on this issue and actually gonna be working with governments on doing this very thing from their nationally representative surveys. So you can look at intake.org um, and, and get some further information on this question. We're gonna have time for one more question, which unfortunately is gonna leave one or two unanswered. So I encourage those people, um, apologies um, that we weren't able to get to your question, but please feel free to reach out to anybody on the panel um, to whom your question was directed. The last one I'm gonna ask is gonna to go to Murad. It's from, um, excuse if I mispronounce your name, but Chijioki um, Endem, a consultant at the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa. And they ask, will the GDQS app have options of language translation? And does it allow adding or modifying existing local nutritious foods? Short answer, yes and yes. Um, <laughs> the the, the uh, application has already been translated into like five or, five or six different languages, including you know, the languages that go um, uh, 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 right to left. And so it works in, uh, it works very well. And, um, and the, um, the Excel file that uh, the, the app uses to pre-classify everything is something that is given to collaborators when they prepare you know, to work in a context to make sure that it covers all the foods that they have in the country and that they need uh, to include in the database. And uh, we work with them to include those foods if they're not there. Thanks very much, Marad. Um, Thank you so much to all the presenters for all the um, very important information in this area of technology-assisted dietary assessment. Um, and thank you to the participants for your wonderful questions. Um, really appreciate your participation. I'm gonna turn it over now to Marie Ruel, who's going to give the closing remarks for the seminar. Thank you very much, um, Shelley, for 
leading us through the, the very good questions and, um, and answers. Um, I think it's, uh, it really was a wonderful seminar. Thanks to the speakers and the discussants, it really brought the, the, a lot of messages home about the importance of dietary data and, and why we're so excited that we are uh, finally making some breakthrough uh, in, in terms of facilitating collecting these data and then hopefully reducing the costs and, and improving the utilization of the data. I cannot help but mention um, my reaction when Aulo came to my office some years ago and said, oh, I have this idea. I want to write a proposal to use artificial intelligence to assess nutrient content of food. And I was like, well, I participated in one of the index um, steering committee or, or some committee like that. And, and I had been quite impressed by a literature review, very detailed literature review that they had done of these tools uh, just to conclude that it was really not working. And so I was, you know, as always, I said, well, convince me, you know, just, just go ahead and convince me. But um, he had done his homework. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't just an idea up, up there. He had talked to the right people and, and he had an idea and they concocted something that I think at the end is, is incredibly impressive. Yes, I was very impressed by the, the preliminary results and, and, and it, it continues to impress me that this is working. It's not ready to go to scale, but it's um, it's working. And the other technologies that, that were presented today were also quite impressive. And there's still a lot of work to do. And we know that there are lots of steps needed to make it really available. But we have gone so fast in getting here in, in the last few years that I'm very confident that uh, with more people getting on, on getting excited about this and, and uh, young people that understand the technology that can help guide us through this, I think we're we're really on 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 the right path. And certainly, um, I, I think um, I, again, I think Aulo is ambitious to think that this can all be scaled in five years from now. But let's give him another uh, chance to prove that he's he's got it. Um, so a few takeaways. Uh, for me, uh, we do need to create more opportunities to discuss these tools and methods. I think this is a, a policy seminar and we need more workshops to sit together with different types of users like we've done today, but with a lot more time to discuss all of the issues. I think that's one of the things that I felt where there's just, uh, this is not the right place or we don't have enough time to do it, but um, we can we can organize that. Um, we also need to set up systems for um, people to be guided through the decision making. I, we could see a lot of questions related to, you know, would it work to use this in that circumstances or this for that purpose? And, and I think when we have tools like that, people tend to get confused and they will want to use one, but maybe that's really not the one for their purpose. And so that's something else we need to provide some guidance on what it is you want to do. And if so, that would be your best bet and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I do think we've talked about the decision makers and the policy makers, and I think we need them, we need to bring them more into this dialogue early on and, and, uh, and just so that they tell us what information they need and how they're going to use it and what format should the information come in. And so that's a, a good point that has been made and, and we need to do that. 
And, and finally, uh, the point made by Shelley about uh, the need to bring this discussion and all these tools into food systems, uh, I have to say that we're very much on it because, uh, as you know, the one CGIR is undergoing a reform and we have several initiatives at IFPRI that are focusing on consumers, uh, which is new because the CG tends to focus on the producers and on, on the supply side. And so we now have initiatives that are bringing in the, the, the views of the consumers and that want to measure and will measure diets and, 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 uh, and a lot of aspects related to how consumers interact with their food environments. So I think the time is very ripe also for that because food systems are finally recognizing that um, this is not just a one-way stream. We need the consumer demand to influence what people produce and where and how, and what the price of, of those products are and the nutritious foods in particular. So um, again, thanks everyone for a very stimulating um, seminar and um, thank you all for joining us. Uh, the video and the slides will be available on IFPRI's web website shortly. Thank you. <laughs>